Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our text for our sermon is three texts, John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, verses 19 through 21, and Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. Then the company of soldiers, their commander and the Jewish guards arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, because he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, it's better that one man die for the people. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in a synagogue or at the temple where all the Jews gather together. I said nothing in secret. Why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. And then Luke's gospel. As soon as it was day, the council of the elders of the people met together, both the chief priests and the experts in the law. They brought him into their Sanhedrin and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me or release me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all said, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, I am what you are saying. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? For we ourselves have heard it from his own mouth. This is the gospel history of our Lord. One of the blessings of being an American citizen is our Constitution says that you are innocent until proven guilty. But let's admit it, even in our highly individualistic culture, there are some accusations that when a person is charged with, they're assumed guilty until proven innocent. And even after being proven innocent, even if they can be proved innocent without a doubt, there are accusations when made against a person. People will always see them as kind of slimy afterwards, always figure they're guilty. Well, in a culture of high honor, a culture of shame, as it's called, if you're summoned before the elders or other councils, you've already done something dishonorable. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to appear before them. And such would be the case with the Sanhedrin. They were supposed to weed out the heretics. So if they've summoned you at the time Jesus was walking the earth, you were pushing the boundaries of what was considered by the masses good, uh, or good teaching. And so as we continue our overall theme, see the shame of the cross with our shameless eyes, today we will ask as Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin, if you are so great, then why are they questioning you? Now, as I've said, if you, were, uh, if you were called to appear before the Sanhedrin, you were already assumed to be a heretic. There was already a dishonor there. Now, the Sanhedrin, many years earlier, had had more power than it had when they interviewed Jesus. They used to not only cover ecclesiastical, that would be churchly things, they also had civil powers. The Roman government allowed them to kill people. So if you were a heretic and they thought it was worthy of death, then you would normally be stoned to death. If you had broke a civil law, like you had murdered, then you would usually be hung. And there is one person in the history of the Sanhedrin, and it went back to the time when they had both civil and ecclesiastical power. There is one person who got summoned before them who beat the culture of shame, who came out better off when it's said and done. And that... I have to tell you, was King Herod. 
Herod the Great, as they call him, although I think we should call him Herod the Horrible. When he was 15 years old, he was king over the region of Galilee, and there was a leader of a gang of robbers, and his name was Hezekiah, or, and not to be confused with the Old Testament guy, but his name was Hezekiah, and uh, his gang of robbers, Herod, led uh, the military against them and captured them. Now, most of them were still alive, and so the rule was they were supposed to go before the Sanhedrin and have a trial. Instead, Herod killed them. Now, the people were upset. The high priest, whose name was Hyrcanus, was upset. Herod basically had committed murder. He, he put them to death without a trial, even though they probably would have been found guilty and been put to death. So the people demanded, including the, some of the mothers in that of the bin he put to death, demanded that Herod appear before the Sanhedrin. Now, to explain the rest of this, I am simply going to read one of the more accurate historians to survive antiquity. That was a Jewish priest named Josephus. He was born in 37 AD, roughly, roughly 10 years after Christ was crucified and rose again. So, in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 14, chapter 9, starting at paragraph 4, and my translation is an older translation, so the English in it is not the English we speak today. You'll see that in a few places. We're told Upon Hyrcanus's hearing that he hearing this, he complied with them. The mothers also of those who had been slain by Herod raised his indignation, for those women continued every day in the temple, persuading the king and the people that Herod might undergo a trial before the Sanhedrin for what he had done. Hyrcanus was so moved by these complaints that he summoned Herod to come to his trial for what was charged upon him. Accordingly, he came. But his father had persuaded him to come, not like a private man, but with a guard for the security of his person. Do you understand what's going on here? You show up with several bodyguards, even if they find you guilty of, and, and worthy of the death penalty. They're not going to enact it. Your bodyguards are going to make sure you get out of there. Continues. And that when he had settled the affairs of Galilee in the best manner he could for his own advantage, he should come to his trial. You get what's going on there? The Sanhedrin doesn't say your court date is this day at this time. When it's convenient for him, then he'll come down. Who else has afforded this privilege? But still with a body of men sufficient for his security on his journey, yet so that he should not come with so great a force as might look like terrifying Hyrcanus, but still such a one as might not expose him naked and unguarded to his enemies. In other words, bring enough bodyguard that they get the hint that they're not going to find you guilty because you're coming out of there alive anyways, but not so many that the people recognize, uh, yeah, this was a strong arm tactic so that they were afraid to find him guilty. And then there's a mistrial and it goes, gets kicked up to the Romans. But there's more. However, Sextus Caesar, president of Syria, wrote to Hyrcanus and desired him to clear Herod and dismiss him at his trial and threatened him beforehand if he did not do it. So Rome has backed Herod. Rome has already made it clear to the high priest you're not to find Herod guilty. Which epistle, that's the one that, Herca that uh, Sextus Caesar wrote, which epistle of his was the occasion of Hyrcanus delivering Herod from suffering any harm from the Sanhedrin and Sextus Caesar, for he loved him as his own son. But when Herod stood before the Sanhedrin with the body of men about him, he affrighted them all. And no one of his former accusers durst after that, bring any charge against them. But there was a deep silence, and nobody knew what was to be done. So it worked. Herod shows up, 
and strong arms them. Continues. When affairs stood thus, one whose name was Samias, a righteous man he was, and for this reason above all fear, rose up and said, O you that are assessors with me, and O thou that art our king, I neither have ever myself known such a case, nor do I suppose that any one of you can name its parallel, that one who was called to take his trial by us ever stood in such a manner before us. But everyone, whosoever he be, that comes to be tried by this Sanhedrin presents himself in a submissive manner and like one that is in fear of himself and that endeavors to move us to compassion with his hair disheveled and in black and mourning garment. So again, in a culture of shame, somebody, even if they're innocent, when they show up, they put on that culture show of mourning and everything else. I'm sorry I've offended you guys, even if they haven't done anything worthy of murder. He continues, but this admirable man, Herod, who is accused of murder and called to answer so heavy an accusation, stands here clothed in purple and with the hair of his head finely trimmed and with his armed men about him, that if we shall condemn him by our law, he may slay us and by overbearing justice may himself escape death. Yet do not I make this complaint against Herod himself. He is, to be sure, more concerned for himself than for the laws. But my complaint is against yourselves and your king, who give him a license so to do. However, take you notice that God is great, and that this very man, whom you are going to absolve and dismiss for the sake of Hyrcanus, will one day punish both you and your king himself also. Nor did Samias mistake in any part of this prediction. For when Herod had received the kingdom... He slew all the members of this Sanhedrin, and Hyrcanus himself also, excepting Simeus, for he had a great honor for him on account of his righteousness, and because when the city was afterwards besieged by Herod and Sosius, he persuaded the people to admit Herod into it, and told them that for their sins they would not be able to escape his hands. So Herod beats the culture of shame by making it abundantly clear he's not going to put up with it. He's the king. He shows up in kingly glory and with enough people to defend himself. And then later when he besieges Jerusalem, he kills everyone that Sanhedrin but Samias. And afterwards, he gut the Sanhedrin of its power. They could only then deal in ecclesiastical churchly affairs. They no longer dealt with civil affairs and they lost the right to take life. This is why the Sanhedrin would have to take Jesus to, before Pilate to Rome. So, the other thing to understand then, again, and reminding you, that in this culture, if you were summoned before the Sanhedrin, you were already assumed by the culture to be doing something heretical. Even if you were found innocent, you were pushing the boundaries above and beyond. But what's even scary to think about is what the Sanhedrin was made up of in order to call you a heretic. There were two parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the high priest, Caiaphas, at the time Jesus is brought to trial, and all the other priests were Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were like modern-day liberal Christians. They denied miracles. They denied the resurrection. They would have denied the virgin birth. And then there was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, the, were in their days, the ultra-conservatives. Oh, they believed in God's word. However... They ignored what God's word had to say about salvation. They believed that you earned your salvation by keeping the law, their interpretation of the law, which would be the Ten Commandments, and to make sure that they didn't violate the Ten Commandments so that they could earn their salvation. Again, accepting that it was their own interpretation. They added over 600 laws to the Ten Commandments for you to follow. So the group of people, Sadducees and Pharisees, that are going to determine if you're a heretic or not are composed of people who either added to the word of God, the Pharisees, or subtracted from the word of God, the Sadducees. In other words, 
These people themselves were heretics. How could they find anybody guilty? And if they did, and it was that obvious that the person was adding so much or to subtracting so much from the word of God, boy, were they really bad. But most of the time, they were in no position. So, three years prior to this, a rabbi, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, had come to Jesus. And this is how we start to get to our answer. How could you let them question you? Because the truth of the matter is, we would think Jesus should do as Herod did. If Jesus just gave him a glimpse of his godly power, half of what Peter, James, and John got to see on the Mount of Transfiguration, or just had one angel appear with him, even telling that angel, turn down your, whole, turn down your brightness by, by three quarters, it would put an end to this, just like Herod did. With, but instead... He does appear before them. If he's so great, why does he do this? Well, three years earlier, Nicodemus, a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin, meets with him in secret. And we're told in John chapter 3, the first two verses, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these miraculous signs you are doing unless God is with him. Who's the we that he's talking about? It's just him meeting with Jesus. The we is mentioned beforehand, the Jewish ruling council. That would be the Sanhedrin. So they know that Jesus is a teacher who's been sent by God just by his miracles. They're already condemning themselves three years earlier because they know it. But then the most important conversation in history takes place since the pre-incarnate Christ had told Adam and Eve after the fall that he, the seed of the woman, would take on human flesh, that he would crush the serpent's head. So in John, 13 verses, uh, John chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, we are told... No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Yet that Jesus is calling himself true God and true man there. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here comes the passage that summarizes all of Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the basis for the judgment. The light has come into the world, yet people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. So it's this simple. We are conceived mean, lean, God-hating machines. We are unholy. The holy law of God, the Ten Commandments, condemn us for every thought, let alone every action that proves our unholiness. But God has given us an escape clause. He became a man. He kept the law for us. He took the punishment for us. And when we believe that he did all that, John 3.16, then we are saved. We're in the state of condemnation because we are unholy in God's courtroom. And yet God gives us an escape clause. Jesus does this for us. And so he only demands faith. But how do we get this faith? Many Christians foolishly think that faith is something here where they make a logical decision after weighing the facts for God. But that's not what Jesus told Nicodemus or what the Bible teaches. In John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Jesus already told Nicodemus how this faith comes. He says, We're told Jesus answered, Amen, Amen, I tell you, unless someone is born of the water and of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
The Holy Spirit gives birth to a new person in you, working through that message and the waters of baptism to create a new person. And when you have that new person, you have faith and you are not condemned. Nicodemus, you can clearly tell the Holy Spirit was working on him and Nicodemus would become a believer. He would go against what the Sanhedrin was doing three years later and he would, and along with another member, Joseph of Arimathea, he would ask for Jesus' body. But it's interesting how in God, because God is perfectly holy, if you're unholy, you're condemned. However, God has given us an escape clause. The Sanhedrin decided to condemn Jesus for no reason. Then they had to find the charges. And this is why he appears before. He was actually the deposed high priest, Annas, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the Romans appointed as high priest when they deposed Annas. So he appears before Annas so Annas can find charges against him. And that brings us back to John 18, verses 12 through 14. Then the company of soldiers, their commander, and the Jewish guards arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas because he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews. It's better that one man die for the people. We have to cover this very quickly. When Jesus had rose Lazarus, remember Lazarus lived just two miles from Jerusalem. The news just hit Jerusalem and everybody's starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, which he is. And so the Sanhedrin gets worried. We're going to lose our positions. And somehow they foolishly reasoned that somehow if Jesus is the Messiah, then the Romans were going to come in and destroy them. And so during that meeting, in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 50, we're told, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not even consider that it's better for us that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And then we're told in verse 50, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So that they would not lose their positions of honor. They are willing to murder and they have to find charges to do it. So that takes us back to John chapter 18 verses 19 through 21 where we're told, and this is Anna still, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in a synagogue or at the temple where all the Jews gather. I said nothing in secret. Why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. This is important. Jesus allows himself to be questioned so that it gets recorded. Jesus wasn't teaching anything secret. Cult leaders do these kinds of things until they get a large enough following to back them. But Jesus was teaching out in public. Made it very clear. Everything I've taught, there's nothing secret. This is for the world. And if you're looking for a reason to condemn me, you can go look at my teachings. Jesus knew he is true God who became true man in the word that none of his teaching contradicted the word of God, which the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they added and subtracted from it. So Annas's job was to find charges so that they could kill him, but he can't. They'd already determined to kill Jesus. They just can't find charges. And Luke finally tells us the charges that they ultimately found. Uh, that's at our sermon text, Luke 22, verses 66 through 71. As soon as it was day, the council of the elders and the people met together, both the chief priests and the experts in the law. They brought him into their Sanhedrin and said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer me or release me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all said, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, I am what you are saying. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? For we ourselves have heard it from his own mouth. 
It was blasphemy to claim to be the Christ or the Messiah. It was blasphemy to claim to be God or the Son of God unless you were the Messiah, the Christ, unless you were true God who became true man, the Son of God. Now, ultimately, Jesus here allows himself to be questioned by them and it ends up getting recorded in the scriptures that he made it very clear I am what you are saying. And this was a teaching that he had made publicly clear anyways. And this is a comfort for you and I, and it answers our question. Why, if you're so great, then why are you letting them question you? To show there was, that this was a kangaroo court that he had taught absolutely openly and publicly, and they could find nothing wrong with his teachings. And to give a clear confession for you, that he is true God who became true man in order to save you. He would use their murderous intentions to place him on the New Testament altar. But remember, the Sanhedrin didn't have the power to kill. And so they have to take him to Pilate. And it's funny, they don't even tell Pilate uh, the charges against him. They even say, if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't bring him to you. Hmm. Pilate could care less about their religion. Ultimately, the charges Pilate has uh, for Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, which he was. There was no crime in that. But Pilate kowtows to the people because he's afraid. He doesn't want a mob. And the Roman soldiers, not all of them would even be Roman, but they would be Gentiles, themselves were willing to cruelly mistreat him. So you have, in the long run, the leader of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish people themselves shouting, crucify, crucify. The leader of the Gentile government that was available there, Pilate, and the Gentiles themselves all involved in what they think is the brutal murder of Jesus. But he uses the Roman, the, the Gentiles' weakness, inability to stand up, and he uses the murderous intention of the Sanhedrin in their manipulation of the crowd through which he will voluntarily give his life on the cross. An innocent man, and that's important for us. We have to understand that he's innocent. Because if he was guilty, he couldn't be your substitute or my substitute or the substitute for the world. We have to understand that he is God. Because if he's just a man, he can only take the punishment for one and just one person. But as God, the death of the God-man would be so precious that it would atone for the sins of the world. God knew the murderous intentions and used it to place himself on the cross, to suffer the injustices and to suffer for the sins of injustice laid on others. How does that apply to you and I? Who of us hasn't assumed the worst in a text or an email because we can't read the emotions and somebody meant everything well, but we think they're out to get us because we assume the worst in a text or an email. Read emotions that aren't there. Who of us hasn't unjustly condemned a neighbor or a co-worker based on things we haven't even taken the time to ask them about or investigate or, or uh, bring the problem to them? Who of us hasn't assumed the worst of our neighbor? Oh, maybe we haven't plotted murder like the Sanhedrin, but... They already despised Jesus and, and then decided to find a reason to condemn them. We've already condemned the people ourselves when we do these sins. So Jesus would suffer that injustice to atone for your and my sins of doing that. And so let's admit it. In our culture, even though it's not a culture of shame, there are accusations you can make against a person in which they are assumed guilty until proven innocent. And often even after being proven innocent, we will consider them filthy and wrong and assume them guilty anyways. Christ underwent that kangaroo court not only to suffer as the victim, but to use it 
to be placed on the New Testament altar where he would die on the cross for your and my sins and even for the sins of the Sanhedrin so that he could clear our already condemned status. We're already condemned if we don't have faith because we're rejecting the only thing that can make sinners holy. And he did that so that he could and he did save us. His innocence of all sin made it abundantly clear so that he can be your substitute, that he abundantly clear that he is innocent. And this is why he's even willing to testify to it and allow this kangaroo court to question him. And his confession that he is God, the son of God, tells you how his death could atone for all of your sins and all the sins of the world as he spelled out to Nicodemus three years earlier. He is God who became a man in order to save fallen human beings. The Sanhedrin wanted to condemn him. God did not want to condemn the world. He wanted to save us. Amen. And now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen.